marvellous. Let me um, pray as we're still standing. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for that story Jesus told about the sower and the different soils that the seed lands on. We thank you so much, Father, that the same seed, when it lands on good soil, bears an amazing crop, a hundred times what is sown. So we pray, please, make our hearts like that good soil, that, that hear your word and receive it, and go on to produce an amazing harvest. In Jesus' name, amen. Great, please take a seat. <clears throat> Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3 is on page 996 um, in the Bibles in our pews, uh, and there will be some words coming up on the screen for the bits we're looking at. Last words are lasting words. Imagine this situation with me. Uh, It's a little girl's first day at school, and her parents wake her up, lay out her school uniform for her. They help her pack her book bag. They pack her lunch. And then they take her to the school gate. Now, if you're a parent and it doesn't go like that, please bear with me. I don't have children. (laughs) They take her to the school gate. And before they say goodbye, the little girl, uh, to the little girl, and she goes through those big school doors and is swept up with the other children, her mum or her dad, they, they kneel down in front of her. They look her in the eye. They smile. And they say, what would they say? What would be the words that that they would want their little daughter to remember on her first day at school? What lasting impression would they want her to have? Turn to the person next to you. What would you say if it was your daughter? Okay, what would you say? What would you say? Um, maybe words like, I love you. Those would be good words to say to your daughter. She's going to school. No matter what she hears, no matter how well or badly she does in her first class, no matter if she makes friends or doesn't make friends, maybe you'd want her to know that whatever happens, you love her. That would help her interpret her first day. doesn't matter how things go, my parents love me. Maybe it would be advice. Maybe it would be, uh, you know, just listen to your teachers. That, that would be a good, good bit of advice to give to, her da- uh, to your daughter so that when she goes in and the, the sites are different, the people are different, the environment is different, one thing she's got to focus on, I'm going to listen to my teacher. I don't know what you'd say to your daughter. I owe Chris Coe a coffee. I didn't think that would work. What would you say? This letter we're reading from Paul to Timothy, they are last words. And they're meant to be lasting words to Timothy. They're words to help him understand and interpret the times that he's living in. They're words to ground him in the task that Paul has given him to do. They're words to which he can return to evaluate his progress, whether he's doing what he's supposed to be doing, and which will guide his decisions for the future. They are supposed to be lasting words, and they're words to be shared with the church so that together we can understand the times we're living in, and we can understand our place in them and what we're supposed to be doing together as we live in them. So what does God say to us by his Apostle Paul through Timothy? Read with me 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. 
Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. The last days, um, they are the times we're in now. So told from God's perspective, the chapter we're in now, it's, it's that one after Jesus has, has died and been resurrected, um, and it's before his second coming. So in this chapter, uh, from God's perspective, um, the gospel is going out, the chapter of human history, the gospel is going out to all of the world, and it's telling people what God has done to rescue people. And it tells, uh, it tells us what we need to do to benefit from that. And for us today, we might live our whole lives in these last days. Or Jesus may come back tomorrow, and that will be the end of history and the beginning of the next chapter, which will never end, um, when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom forever. So Paul wants us to know what these days are going to be like. And he says, these days before Jesus returns, they're going to be times of difficulty. And why is that? It's because of verses 2 to 5. So please let's read them together. Paul says, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now, if you're on social media, uh, these might be good verses to have in front of you before you decide to post anything. Because this is the air we breathe and it's the sea we swim in right now. Last summer, I volunteered on a, uh, on a youth holiday camp um, and one of the days I was driving a group of boys to an activity, and these boys, they loved to listen to their own music in the car. All I had to do was say, do you want to listen to your music? And I was so popular. It was brilliant. Um, so the deal was, we were going to listen to their music, but they weren't allowed to listen to music which had swear words or which demeaned or objectified people. And these were good guys, they were mature boys, um, and they said, okay, that seems fair. But they were shocked to realize how much of their music that disqualified. How many of their songs failed those two simple criteria, no swear words, no objectifying people. The thing is, the sort of language and that sort of attitude uh, to people, that had become normal to them. Now, they were young boys. Their lives were full of potential and promise. But that short car journey showed them that the air they breathe and the sea that they swim in is educating them to be a certain way. And they need to decide what sort of men they're going to grow up to be. Are they going to grow up to be men who, who swim in that sea of, of objectifying people and swearing? Or are they going to decide to be men of a very different character? And we need to be wise too because we are also breathing the same air, swimming in the same sea that Paul says is characterized by the love of self rather than the love of God. And, you know, context for Timothy, let's remember Paul has put him in charge of the church in Ephesus, the churches in Ephesus. He's been appointed, he's been told to appoint elders, leaders of those churches. And some of the people who will be putting themselves forward to be appointed will be coming out of that sea of self-love, of pride, arrogance, brutality, slander, treachery, conceit, and self-advancement. 
some of the people who will be coming forward saying, I want to be a leader of the church, well, they will have a form of godliness about them because they're obsessed with their own image. And they've clocked that if they can have a form of godliness, then maybe that will get them the position that they want. These people, they will be self-promoting, self-serving, self-important people who will probably thrust themselves forward at any opportunity to gain some power. And Timothy needs to be aware of that because look at verses 6 and 7. Look what happens if these people get in charge of the church. Paul says, From among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. These people, they will prey on the weakest. They will prey on people who aren't able to defend themselves. They will prey on people who are easily manipulated. So what is the line that people who have been duped by scammers say once they've handed over their bank details and seen their savings destroyed? Don't we hear them say stuff like, he seemed like such a nice young man? Or she seemed so vulnerable, I just wanted to help her? These people are predators. So what is Timothy supposed to do to them? It's the second half of verse 5, if you can find it. Paul says, avoid such people. Avoid them. So what does that mean? Put yourself in Timothy's shoes. You've been given the, the task to appoint elders. You're leading a church. You're setting a culture based off the message of Jesus Christ. And your mentor and friend, Paul, is in prison for that very message. And you've got to appoint leaders for this church so that its future is going to be established. And around you, there are some very gifted very impressive-looking people who are already amassing a following. And they are beginning to put forward their opinions about how things ought to be done. And the thing is that they're projecting this, this form of godliness. They're, they're signaling their virtue. They're the type of people that if there was a scandal, they would be the first to condemn it, fiercely and publicly. And they'd be very good at manipulating a situation so that if you weren't on their side, well, then they would paint you as someone who was an enemy of the people they were supposedly defending. And the question is, if you were Timothy, whose opinion would you be more concerned about? Would you be concerned about the loud, opinionated go-getters who could paint you as an enemy and could do you damage, or would you be concerned about the, the opinion of the imprisoned Apostle Paul? See, the temptation would be to, to avoid Paul in prison and listen to the go-getters. We'd try to appease them. The temptation would be to appease them or get them on our side. But Paul says, don't do that. Avoid them. Don't engage with them. Don't get drawn into their controversies. Don't try to arbitrate between their opinions. Don't try to appease them. Just avoid them. And if we were Timothy, we might be thinking, is that it? Is that enough? You know, aren't these guys destroying the church? Aren't they predators? Don't they need to be silenced? Shouldn't we be worried about them, Paul? You see, if Timothy won't stand up and, and fight back, won't his little church just be swept away? How is Paul able to say, just avoid them? That's all you need to do. 
and it's because of verses 8 and 9. Um, let's read them together. Paul writes, Just as Janus and Jombres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was, those, as was that of those two men. Do verses 8 and 9, do they reassure you why Paul can say calmly to Timothy, just avoid these people? It's because they won't get very far. Timothy, you don't need to do anything. Their folly will expose itself. Have you ever heard of Janus and Jombres? I mean, only in this part of the Bible have I heard about them. I had to go hunting for information about them. But they were probably a really big deal in Pharaoh's court. They were probably a really big deal, but no one's heard of them now. You've got to go hunting for that kind of information. Here's the thing about Janus and Jombres. When, when Moses came to Pharaoh and said, the Lord says, let my people go, Pharaoh said back to Moses, who is the Lord? Who is this Lord God that you're telling me about? Why should I pay any attention to him? So then most of us will know the story thanks to... Um, uh, is it DreamWorks or, or Disney, the, the Prince of Egypt? The Lord gave signs to Moses to perform in front of Pharaoh uh, to show him that, that the Lord was God and that Pharaoh should listen to him. And instead of listening to, to Moses, Pharaoh opposed him um, and he called up his magicians. And now we think that Janus and Jombres were, were part of those magicians. Um, and they tried to copy the signs. So what happens is God turns the Nile into blood the magicians try to do the same, and they succeed. Um, God sends a swarm of frogs. Um, the magicians try and conjure up some frogs, and, and they succeed. And, and, you know, I don't know, maybe Moses is going, God, it's not working. They're doing exactly what you're doing. God sends a swarm of gnats. The magicians try to conjure them up, but this time they fail. And here's the thing. Look, if there really is a living God who created heaven and earth, well, don't oppose him. You know, if you're a human being, you might be a really, really big deal. And if you see God turn the Nile into blood and you think, yeah, I can do that. If you see God conjure up frogs, you think, yeah, I can do that. Don't oppose him. That's madness. Janus and Jombres, they were probably a really big deal back in Moses' day in Pharaoh's court, but now we have never heard of them. When they opposed Moses, they opposed God. And when they opposed God, they lost. And these people, these predators, these self-loving, self-serving people, when they oppose Timothy, they're opposing the truth. And because they oppose the truth, they won't get very far because God is a God of truth. So all Timothy needs to do is to step back and say, I'm on the side of truth here. I'm on the side of God. I'm on the side of his apostle Paul. And then Timothy can let God fight against these wicked, self-serving people of his generation. It's an amazing thing to be on the side of truth amazing because it means you don't need to be scared of what you don't know. You could be having a conversation with a PhD biologist and you don't need to be scared by what she's researching. If she's doing good research, 
Brilliant. She's discovering more about God's world. You're on the side of truth. You can say, I'm interested in that. If you're on the side of truth, you don't need to be scared by the claims of modernism or postmodernism or intellectualism or liberalism or Marxism or Twitter. Because you're on the side of truth. And if you're a Christian, you've met the truth personally. You've met Jesus Christ. And you can say, yeah, I'm interested in anything that will reveal more of the truth to me because I've met the truth and I like it. When Timothy says, I'm on the side of truth, he is free from engaging in every single controversy. He is free from having to defend himself against every single accusation. He is free from every demand on his attention by these self-seekers. And he is free to preach the gospel, which is what Paul commands him to do in chapter 4. So Paul says to Timothy, be aware that you're in terrible times. But don't be worried, because your opponents won't get very far because they oppose the truth. And it's great news for us today, because if, it means when we're, if we're on Jesus' side, well, then when Jesus is vindicated, we'll be vindicated. The miserable thing about living in the last days is that people are brutal in their self-advancement. So I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if, if some of us have walked into church or staggered into church after a really brutal week. People will be slanderous and treacherous. Maybe some of us here have had our names dragged through the mud this week. If that's you, if you're looking down at verses 2 to 5 and you think, yeah, that is what the world is like right now, then will we let this passage strengthen us? Will you let this passage strengthen you to stand one more week on the side of truth with Jesus? Will you let this passage liberate you from the tyranny of having to constantly defend yourself against every accusation, defend your reputation, defend your value? Will you let it liberate you from doing that? Will you let this passage remind you that Jesus wants to fight those battles for you? What might that look like? Well, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Um, if this is your first time hearing about Jesus, seeing what Christians believe, um, then we'd love to help you find out more. We want to help you do that due diligence that you want to do so that you can make an informed decision about Jesus and whether or not you can trust him. <clears throat> and in fact, this Sunday evening, Ian, who's leading our service, he will be preaching a sermon aiming to do exactly that, so if you're able, please join us for that. Find out more about Jesus. Do that due diligence. We'd love to help you um, if you want to do that. But maybe you're not a Christian and you've been coming along with us for a while and you've done the due diligence. You've heard what Christians say about Jesus. You've heard what Jesus says about Jesus. You've heard of his claims, why he came, what he gives and what he wants. Well, may I say, if that's you, when we explore Christianity, we really need to be aware of our attitude. And may I ask you this morning, are you exploring genuinely trying to get to the truth? Or if you're honest with yourself, do you see where the truth is leading and you don't quite like it and you're starting to resist it? Now, I can't read your heart. Only you can answer that question. But if you're not a Christian... Jesus says to you, please stop fighting me and please let me fight for you instead.
And what about for those who are Christians already? Now, I don't know what kind of week you're stepping into tomorrow. Uh, there might be some brutal office politics that you're a part of. Or you might be under some subtle or not so subtle pressure to compromise on your values. You may have been put into a corner and feel like you've got no way out tomorrow. Well, please will you know this morning that when you go through those doors out there into the world, if you're a Christian, you're on the side of truth. Nothing more, nothing less. And staying on the side of truth tomorrow may mean that you lose some battles. It may mean that the brutal, slanderous, treacherous self-lovers chew you up and spit you out tomorrow. It may mean that your reputation gets an absolute trashing by those who have a form of godliness but deny its power. Being on the side of truth may mean that you lose tomorrow. But you lose with Jesus. You lose with your integrity. You lose because you know that Jesus wins in the end and that it's better to lose with Jesus now if it means that you can stand with him at the end. So you don't need to respond brutally to the world's brutality. You don't need to out-scheme the world's schemes. You don't need to be afraid of the truth coming out because you're on the side of truth. And now maybe for some of us here, that can liberate us to admit where we've made mistakes. Maybe for some of us here, that can free us to be the first person to cross over to the other side and, and say sorry for our side of the mess because we're on the side of truth. Maybe for other of us, others here, it can strengthen us to patiently endure scorn and contempt in a manner that is above reproach. Maybe it can help us resist the temptation to fight back with our own scorn and contempt. Imagine with me if, if all of us went out from here to work or to school tomorrow, resolved not to worry about our own advancement, whether that's socially, politically, whatever kind of advancement you can think about. And instead, we dedicated ourselves to standing on the side of truth, doing the work that God has given us to do, loving the people that God has put us around. See, the thing is, in these last days of self-seeking, virtue-signaling, character-smearing cynicism, outrage, envy, division, narcissism, and ideology. If you're able to go about your work humbly and cheerfully with God as your helper, doing the best that you can do with what you have, and doing it for God's glory, not your own glory, or not for the world's approval, if you can go out to work with that kind of confidence and joy, that is prophetic. Because it proclaims to everyone who's watching that Jesus is going to win in the end. So let the world oppose you because its folly will be plain to all. In these last days, the great news for us is if we're Christians, if we're trusting Jesus, then it's okay to lose because Jesus wins in the end. Please take 30 seconds just to think what tomorrow will be like and what it will mean for you to stand on the side of truth. Then I'll lead us in a prayer and we'll sing our, last, our next song.
Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you, you know what these last times are like and you have spoken to make us wise to live in them. Thank you so much that you've given us Jesus, our perfect King and Saviour, who not only cleans up our mess and makes us uh, able to stand before your, your judgment seat, um, but also protects us uh, from all the attacks of the devil and of the world. Thank you so much that if we're with him, he looks after us um, until he returns again. Help us please to stand for one more week with Jesus on the side of truth. Help us please to grow in his likeness and do good works for his glory. Amen.